Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. See, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him, he is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, settling, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they're drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you, and his grace will cover your glory. The violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies for the one who makes it trust in his own creation? He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Um, so we're in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, it was last summer. I had a healthy portion of rosé in my right hand and a baguette in my left hand. And I, I start to think about the year to come. And in God's kindness and providence... Um, Habakkuk came into my mind uh, in northern France and we appear to be preaching through it at a very timely interval culturally. Um, Habakkuk, seventh century, a few people are new. Uh, Habakkuk is 7th century BC. Um, it's a small nation of uh, Judah, God's people, and they're surrounded by military might. So you've got the superpowers of Egypt, you've got the superpowers of Assyria and Babylon, and this tiny little conclave of God's people right in the middle. They're vulnerable. 
And in chapter 1, God is saying, I, I'm going to, hearing Habakkuk's concerns and fears and tears, are you there? Do you care? God says, I'm going to do something amazing that if I explained it to you, you would not even believe. I'm going to use the might of Babylon to do something drastic among you. Babylon are going to be used like a wrecking ball, but they're under my control because I'm sovereign overall. And one of the wonderful things about looking at it at this moment in our time as a culture and as a nation is that it's my conviction and the, the teaching of the whole Bible, if you engage with a book like Habakkuk, it equips you for faithless times. It equips you for times when your knees are a bit shaky, when anxiety is, is big, when you're losing sleep and uh, shedding tears about elderly relatives and how they're fair with coronavirus. And in uh, chapter 2, we, we get introduced to the Babylonian Empire, rising up, that God is going to be using them. And these two principles that come into our mind from verse 4 through verse 20, that says this, two principles to engage with in evil times, two principles to engage in in confusing times. Here are the principles. One is for your head and one is for your heart. With your head, you need to understand the source of evil. We need to understand, sidebar, coronavirus is not directly applicable to this. This is talking about times when evil is in society, not a virus. And yet there is a natural crossover as well. But there's a principle here for us to understand in our head the source of evil. There's also a principle to us for us to understand in our hearts, which is comfort in times of evil. We'll look at each individually. First of all, you need to understand in evil times when something is oppressive, when something is overtly evil and dark, you need to understand the source of evil. What do I mean? Here are some pictures. Don't get ahead of me. Here are some pictures. Joel's quick on the trigger. Uh, knife crime. Before coronavirus, there's a huge discussion going on in society, especially in London. There's a, there's a knife epidemic on the streets of London. What's happening to our young people? What's happening to our youth culture? And a lot of people are looking for someone to blame. The issue is people don't have enough education. That's the problem. That's the, that's the why 18 to 25-year-olds are on the streets of London. There's a huge increase exponentially of knife crime. Here's another example. The problem with people who say, I must not be naughty, boys at school, girls at school, and the blackborn sitting or sent to a corner, being excluded, well, that's medical. There's a medical issue, there's an imbalance, and that means why boys and girls can't behave at school. They just need to be medicated. Here's another example. If we're not blaming uh, homes or medicine, we just blame the government. What for? Well, it's for everything. It's the government's fault. They're not doing enough. They're doing too little. Their uh, intervention is too great, it's too late. There's something in our hearts that blames, that looks for reasons and explanations. And the explanation and the reason and the, uh, and the court of blame is always external. We never take responsibility for ourselves. The Bible, when it looks at the source of evil, this, this issue we need to understand with our head, is never ever simplistic. It never says, here's the sole answer. It never says, there's the person you blame. There's the place you go. And in the center of our passage here, you've got a description of what society was like in Babylon. This huge superpower that's going to come in like a wrecking ball and take away all that is good in Judah. This is what the society is like. This is how rotten it is. Look at these sentences with me. Verse 6. 
This is what Babylon is like. There's a ruthlessness. There's greedy business practices in the nation of Babylon. There is verse 8. There's bloodshed. They're murdering and killing people by the hundreds and by the thousands. Verse 12. Those who are poor and weak experience violence. This is the culture of Babylon. And then to top and to tail, verse 5 at the beginning, verse 18 at the end, these two bookends, two sources of evil that I want us to look at. One is pride. The second is idolatry. It's easy to look at uh, verse 6, 8, 12 and say, oh yeah, those Babylonians, they're just like these great empires of history. These great empires that did, that kind of raped and pillaged and murdered. Those Babylonians are awful. And we just blame history and we look at other cultures and we push the blame elsewhere. But then we look at sentence 5 and sentence 8, these two bookends that top and tail the passage. And the source of evil gets far closer to home. Look at sentence 5. This is not just true of history. This is true of our hearts. He... That's talking about the Babylonian society. Verse 5, he. The Babylonian society is arrogant. It's never at rest because they are as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. They gather up to themselves all the nations and take captive of all peoples. This is a, a description. Babylon, he. This is a description of what whets the appetite of the Babylonian Empire. Why they do what they do. Why they uh, try and make money by corruptive means. Why they use their power in certain ways. Why they don't care for the oppressed. Because they're proud, sentence five. And they want to clothe themselves with what? With glory. Verse 16, look down there. The Babylonians using all their strength, all their initiative, all their endeavour to accrue for themselves power, and wealth. They want to clothe themselves. There's this kind of jacket of glory. Look at me. This is what I want to win. And here are the means by which I get to that point. Still kind of remote. So let's look at two female celebrities from a bygone age. I'm showing my age physically, grey hairs, but also with illustrations. Forgive me. There was once a lady called Madonna. She's still around. She's now as a Zimmer frame, bless her heart. But uh, in the 1980s, a long time ago, three decades ago, if not more, she gave this very interesting interview to uh, an American publication called Vanity Fair. She was very, very successful. She uh, had made millions of records. She'd made millions from merchandise as well. But to celebrity and fame was never enough. This is what she said. I feel special. The more celebrity I enjoy... I feel special, but then it goes away. So I have to reach further and further. It's never enough. Here's, here's another celebrity, wonderful athlete of a bygone uh, era called Chris Everett. Chris Everett was the most wonderful, elegant, skillful tennis player. She won Wimbledon a couple of times, I think. But she says this, I was so driven in an interview. I was so driven to be the best. I was so driven in my training. I was so driven to win almost at all cost. But why? Winning, winning made me feel pretty. There was a goal beyond the trophy. There was a goal beyond the training. That was, she wanted to feel beautiful, and she was beautiful. But here are two women with National Women's Day just gone by who say, actually, the reason I'm motivated for success and setting records and making money 
is actually because there's a hole in my heart. There's a reason that uh, I want to win trophies, I want to train, and that is I want to feel beautiful, because I don't. In other words, there's two ladies in the modern guys, the modern era, who are acting just like the Babylonians. Look at sentence 17. Why are they burning down cities? Well, it's the same reason that Chris Everett wants to win trophies, wants to win events. It's the same reason people preach. It's the same reason people look for success. It's the same reason people want to achieve and are never satisfied until they get 100%. It's because we are all very, very insecure right in our hearts. All of us want to have a cloak of glory. All of us want to be seen as successful. All of us want to be known and have a reputation. All of us are trying to cover up this deep hold in our heart, this deep longing. We want to feel significant. We want to know what it's like to be honoured. We want to have a great reputation. We want to be made beautiful, especially women amongst us. There was a man who said, actually, behind all those things in your heart, that's that emptiness. Well, if you understand that emptiness, you can understand the source of evil in our heads. Lewis Smedes was his name. He's talking about proud hearts. He's talking about arrogance. And he's talking about getting to the very heart of the Babylonian culture. Maybe our culture too. He says this, Pride, pride in the religious sense, is an arrogant refusal to let God be God. We think we can use our resources to run our lives and we'll be okay. And all is going well and then you get bankrupt. All is going well and then you lose a child. All is going well and your relationship crumbles. All is going well and yet there's a global pandemic and we think we're going to be okay if we just put a piece of paper over our mouths and wash our hands carefully. Pride is at the heart of this deep longing that we have to clothe ourselves with with glory. It's, It's the issue of what is wrong with our culture and wrong with me. It's there in verse 5. I hope you see some of that in yourselves, because I do. And if you don't, you don't know yourself, to be frank. But look at, uh, if pride is in verse 5, let's go to the end of the passage, verse 18 and 19, and, and you see this issue of idolatry. There's a temptation in our hearts to get a good thing and to make it into an ultimate thing, to make a good thing and make it into a ruling thing. And uh, as we do that, We are longing for glory. We're longing for a beauty that we think winning can provide, but only God can give. We can think of a a glory we're trying to uh, achieve, but actually achievement will never get there. We'll be crushed under the weight of that burden. And as John said to the children so helpfully, idolatry is always crushing. Idolatry is always a cruel taskmaster. It could be your looks, it could be success, it could be achievement, it could be money, it could be the postcode. But every culture has something that it promotes, that it says that if you get it, it will give you what ultimately only God can give. So it's success. So it's renown. So it's looks. But that thing that the culture promotes, actually at the same time, will provide the seeds for the culture's own destruction. Look at sentence 17. Here are two modern examples. Talks about environmental sin. Very up to date. Good old Greta, bless her heart. Harming Lebanon. That's uh, an environmental sin. That's uh, taking trees and forests and chopping them down. That's killing animals. Look at sentence 15. Woe to the one who gets people drunk. 
so you can gaze on their nakedness. That's a Hebrew uh, euphemism for saying about sexual uh, escapades, having sex with people. So on one hand, in our culture, you've got the, the liberal left who are saying it's all about protecting the environment. And then you've got the conservative right who are saying there must be no sin before, uh, excuse me, there must be no sex outside of marriage. And you've got polar opposites, a bit like red and blue in America. And the Bible is the only book that says actually everything's a sin. We're all alienated from God. It's not left or right. We're not broken. We're sinful rebels against the holy God. But God in his grace pursues us with his love and with his son and provides hope. Everyone wants a scapegoat. Everyone wants to blame Boris for not doing enough, not doing it too soon. Everyone wants to blame schools and everyone wants to blame the home. And the blame is always externally. And yet the fault line for evil, the problem of evil and the problem of pain and sadness runs right through every human heart. That's the core issue of our humanity. That's the, the source of evil. Pride is the problem. And without wanting to be twee, it infects every single person. It's our great problem. Part of the solution is humility. Part of the solution is repentance. But when you face evil times, the World War II, World War I, when you face the uprising of Pol Pot, when you have evil times, like Colombia, when you have evil times, you need to understand the source of evil. And it's not out there. The problem is me. The fault line goes right through our hearts. But secondarily, this, the second thing you need to engage is, if that's what you understand as you look into the world, the problem is in me, the problem is in my heart, and your heart too, the second thing you need is comfort. I'm not talking about clothing here and stuff you put in your laundry. The second thing you need is comfort for your heart when you're facing evil times or whether you're facing confusing times like we are now. So where is hope for your heart in evil times in the book of Habakkuk? Where is hope for your heart in 2020 when it may be the last time we can meet for a few months? Here's hope for your heart. Two verses that I want to point you to. They're like lighthouses in the darkness. I wonder if you sensed it as John read it. Here's the first one, wrath. Excuse me. Here's the first one. When you've got wrath described and when you've got destruction and you've got bloodshed, look at verse 14. And then look at verse 20. You've got verse 14, you've got verse 20. You're reading along and it's all darkness and doom and woe. And then you read this. But, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. And you think light, relief. And then you're reading along in verse 14, it says, The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will appear as the waters cover the sea. It's like a shelter in the darkness. It's a shelter in the storm. It's a lighthouse if you're driving or steering a ship on the ocean. That's how hope works. That's how hope works in darkness. That's uh, when you're anxious and you sit bolt upright and you're sweating in the middle of the night. This is how hope works. It's a ray of sunlight. Let's look at the second one. First, let's look at verse 20. Here's the penultimate hope you have in bad times, in confusing times, in pandemic times. Hear this. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What is this saying? This is saying no matter how bad things get, no matter how full hospitals become, no matter how long it is before we can perhaps meet again, no matter how long it is that your children are at home, 
That's a blessing and a curse. No matter how long it is before lockdown happens, no matter how long it is, the Bible teaches that God is still in control. God is sovereign over all. I haven't picked this passage. This is, just, this is in the diary from last August. It's very timely. God is sovereign in control. He is supreme over all. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all earth be silent before him. This is talking global stuff. This is talking nations. Over Assyria, he's over Egypt, he's over Babylon, and he's over you, Judah, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how long it is before you can be brought back to Jerusalem and God keeps his promise. This is true globally. It's true on big stuff scale. But it's true personally as well. It's true personally. What do I mean? Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, we begin the story of Jacob. Jacob was supposed to be the one through whom God's king, the Messiah, would come. And yet his life is an absolute mess. He makes a train wreck of it. He makes huge decisions that he's responsible for. So uh, he lies to his father. He, he puts uh, animal skin on his arms and, and he, he deceives his near-blind, aged father and he robs the birthright from his brother. His brother Esau wants to find out. And what does he want to do? What every good brother would do. He wants to kill him. He wants to kill him, so he pursues him, so he runs for his life. And Jacob, that's the last he sees of his dad, that's the last he sees of his mum, and he's off in the wilderness, and he's ruined and wrecked his life. Where's God in that picture of the small details of life, of relationships, and of family breakdowns? Is he in control? What a mess. What guilt he must feel, what anxiety. But if he hadn't run away... He would have never have met a woman who he married, who became his wife, through whom came the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is how God works. We're not, we're not puppets on a string. God is sovereign over all, and yet he is good, and he works in spite of us, and he works through us. We are absolutely accountable for every decision we make. God is not far away. He's close. He's a heavenly father, but he's good, and he's close, and he rules over nations and governments, over the World Health Organization, over COBRA, over schools, over employers, over limited resources. And he's also in charge of your life and my life too. Do you really think God thought, oh no, Jacob, he's made a mess of my plans. What am I going to do now? If you think like that, your God is far, far too small. God is never caught off guard. He's never surprised. He's always in control. Jacob shouldn't have done it, but through his actions, God worked. And that's always how God works. He's sovereign over all. Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. You can make a right mess of your life. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He's still in control. That's what the Bible teaches. I have a plan for you, says God. I'm going to overrule all evil, all bad choices, all dodgy choices, all things you regret and are ashamed of. I rule over all those things. And I have a plan and a purpose to prosper you. We're not just puppets. God never makes a mistake. Your decisions count. God doesn't think, oh, I really wanted you to marry that person, not that person. God doesn't think like that. 
You're absolutely free and responsible for your choices. But God is sovereign in control. That's what the Bible teaches. And when you understand that, please come and explain it to me. Because I don't. But that's what the Bible teaches. That's the first wonderful shard of light into the darkness of chapter 2. God never, God never ever leaves his throne. God is never caught napping. He's never caught by surprise. He's good and he controls everything. You need to remember that today. Here's the second gleam of light in the dark passage. Sentence 14. It's the first one we come across. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The reason why we're empty on the inside is because we look for glory in all the wrong places. That there's glory hunger in my heart and your heart too. That, that's why Chris Everett wanted to win as many titles as she could. Why? She wanted to feel beautiful. Why? She was longing for glory. There's a saying, I think, from G.K. Chesterton, every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's actually searching for God. That takes some time to think about. He's looking for love in the wrong places. The love and the beauty you're only finding in Jesus. The Babylonians were hungry for glory. They were trying to get honour and renown in all the wrong ways. And only God's beauty, only his honour, only his love, only his applause will truly satisfy. This is uh, telling us something in verse 14, that you can bathe in the glory of God in the day and the future. You can wear it. You'll be clothed with it. You'll be safe because you're surrounded by it. You can breathe in and know and understand God's glory completely in a day to come. Look at sentence 16 though. How, how can that future reality be? How can that future glory saturating the, the globe to its four corners, how can that be true? Look at sentence 16. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Babylonians who think their glory can be found on this earth. And yet sentence 16 says, I'm going to do something so you'll be filled with shame instead of the glory you're looking for in the wrong places. He's talking to proud people who think they can, they can, by doing something with the strength of their own arm, they can feel good, they can get glory, when actually we all, like them, deserve shame. We deserve shame because of what we've done. We deserve shame, not grace, because of the way we've treated God. We deserve shame for the way we treat other people and step on them to get them to do what we want for our own good and glory. But when you see sentence 16, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. If you're a Christian here this morning, I bet you can't read that sentence without thinking of someone else. Someone who was filled with shame rather than glory. Maybe you thought of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who went on the ultimate journey from heaven to earth so that he'd go from a cradle to a cross. Jesus emptied himself of all his glory. The Babylonians and you and I, we're trying to cover ourselves with glory. We're trying to fill that hole in our hearts. But Jesus, Jesus willingly emptied himself of glory so that we could receive it. Jesus willingly took our shame upon himself so that we could be wearing his glory. I was reading this week about uh, Korean missionaries. There's a picture up here of a Korean uh, missionary gathering in 1905, uh, 06, 07. There was a revival in Korea. 
Korean culture, like many Asian cultures, is shame. It's based on shame. The worst thing you can do is to marry the wrong person. The worst thing you can do is, is to break a social norm or a con concern. It's very controlling in that way. And that was some of the reasons that there was only 1% of the population was uh, overtly Christian before the revival of the 1905, 6, 7. After that revival, 40%, 40% of Korea became Christian in the following years. It's very interesting as you read the accounts of what happened in some of these revival meetings where the Bible is explained, where God's spirit came and worked miraculously and wonderfully. What happened? You had Korean men, Korean women standing up in front of a group, a gathering, and saying, this is what I've done wrong. They were willing to confess their sins, what they'd stolen. They're willing to publicly say, I've wronged this person, and um, I'm asking for forgiveness. And they wept, and they wept, and they wept. It would never have happened. How could a Korean person stand up in a culture of shame and renown where it's so important to keep up the public face and facade? How could someone do that? Because of the gospel. Because they realized that they were looking for approval in the wrong place. They're looking for approval in this world when actually it's possible and only possible to be found by a relationship with Jesus Christ. They realised that Jesus took all their shame, they were clothed in his honour, and so that now their friends could say what they wanted because they had, they had, they had the glory they were looking for. Friends, when you see the beauty of Jesus, when you know the love of God, when you understand the gospel at an increasingly deep level, when you can say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus has done. I've made so many mistakes, but I come to you with nothing. Please rescue me by your grace. When you know that, when you know that you're clothed in his beauty and his righteousness, so that his Father, when he sees you, he sees his Son. Union with Christ, it's called. You don't need to win at all costs. You don't need to go and make a new record so you can make more money because you're longing to have more glory. You don't tread on people. You can serve people. You can serve your neighbour. You can ring up your Christian friend and say, how are you? Now we're part of the solution. We're not part of the problem. We're not in evil times, but we are in selfish times where you go to supermarkets and shelves are empty. People are getting cynical. People will get angry. They will blame other people. They will lose hope. And then amongst this darkness, there are Christians who have the potential to be rays and beams of light. Why? Because they know these two rays of hope in their heart. God is on his throne. He will always be on his throne. He's good and he's sovereign over all things. And there's a day coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Christians should be the very opposite. We're not going to take more than we need. We're not going to be uh, concerned about our own health unduly so because the gospel has humbled us. And so proud hearts are being replaced by humble spirits as God goes to work with us by his Holy Spirit. We have more confidence than we had before. Why? Because we hope in God, not ourselves. We're not proud, we're humble. Why? Because the day is coming for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray.